This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. seated. We're going to look today at a passage in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at this idea of the gospel going to the nations. This passage is actually um, has a quote in it from Isaiah 42. It's this idea that Christ would be the fulfillment of, of the gospel going to the nations, of the proclamation of justice going to the nations. But it's set in this very interesting setting that we're going to talk about today and look at it as we look at our responsibility for what it means for us to go to the nations, how it is that God calls us, as he called the nation of Israel to be a light to the nation, how he calls us to go to the nations as well. So I want to kind of read the passage and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about the controversy that was going on within this passage regarding the Sabbath and then we'll look at the application of the passage to our, our hope for the nations. So I want to pick up in Matthew chapter 12 reading in verse 15. It says Jesus was aware of this and it's this idea that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him and he withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will pro proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. And he will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory and the nations will put their hope in his name. This passage comes in the context of the Sabbath. There had been this controversy that began to develop and it was over the idea of the Sabbath and Jesus uh, doing miracles on the Sabbath or his disciples acting uh, to feed themselves even on the Sabbath in a certain way and how that had given, given offense to these religious leaders. Now when we talk about the Sabbath, um, you'll see a couple things here. You'll notice first of all that this idea of Sabbath, I'm sorry these aren't very readable, has the idea of, of to cease or to rest or an inactivity. Of course, we know that it's modeled on Genesis 2-3 where it says, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all of his work they had created. And in honor of that day, the Lord declared it to be a special time of rest and remembrance for his people. And as you know, it was incorporated into the law, into the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. But over a period of time, as the as the Jews coming out of exile into the land of Israel, they were very committed that the sins that had happened in the previous generations, they did not want to repeat. And so whatever the law said, they needed to understand that and they needed to make sure that they were doing nothing that would violate the law. And one of the areas that came about 
was the idea that in this whole pursuit of, of, of keeping the law was this area of the Sabbath. In fact, uh, in the oral tradition, which we have to remember that these Pharisees, or these religious leaders had this oral tradition, it was later written down after the time of Christ called the Talmud, that there are literally 24 chapters, right, of regulations about the Sabbath. And the things that were there are, are just became so much of a burden to the people. You know, were things like, you know, the things that you can pick up, or the things that you're allowed to put down, the objects uh, to which, you know, you can, can eat, the things you can eat, the things that you cannot eat. You know, you weren't even allowed to carry a needle with you on the Sabbath because it might tempt you to maybe sew something and that would be working, right? Um, there were these ideas that, you know, you could go some 3,000 feet from your house, but, you know, if you took food with you and you ate then, then that meant that that food was a part of your house, so then you could go another 3,000 feet, right? Or you could carry a rug or you could, these different things. Like if you had a chicken, a chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath, did the chicken violate the Sabbath, right? Uh, this is a real thing now. So if you ate the egg on the Sabbath, then, it, then the chicken violated the Sabbath and the chicken had to die. But if you didn't eat the egg, then the chicken could live, right? Because the chicken didn't violate the Sabbath because it was just doing. And so there was just these crazy things and rules that were made to make sure we're doing it right, right? If you have a candle that's burning, a lamp that's burning, then you just let it go out. Because if you blow on that candle, then somehow you had violated the Sabbath. You couldn't write a letter on the Sabbath. You couldn't um, do your laundry on the Sabbath. Some of y'all wouldn't argue with that too much, you know. So, you know, you couldn't, there were just certain things. And I had all this list and list and list of all these things that you couldn't do because to be holy, you need to make sure you know what you can do and what you can't do. But in the pursuit of all of that, all of these things, it became more about the keeping of these externals then really what was the condition of the heart, right? So what does it matter, you know, some of these other things, if my heart isn't in worship on the Sabbath, if my heart's not right on the Sabbath, you know, how could all of these things be, be matter if it wasn't a condition of the heart? But one of the things that um, Jesus got in trouble for were really kind of a couple things. One was he decided that it was okay to heal people on the Sabbath. And the other was his disciples decided that they could uh, go through the grain fields and they could take these, these, um, these kernels of wheat, right? They could take this and they would brush them in their hand like this. And then they would take the seeds and they would eat them for something to eat. And so the disciples were doing that, but guess what? That's like you're threshing grain. So that's working. So it's a violation of the Sabbath. So it wasn't that they were eating it. It's, it's how they were doing it. And then these persons that he heals on the Sabbath, like there's one who's ha he's in a synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand and, and, and he's, he's in pain and Jesus wants to help him and he wants to, to minister to him. But he asked some folks around him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, the law, the oral law said that if a person had a condition and if it was life or death, then it was okay to help them, right? It was okay to help them bring about healing. But if it wasn't life or death, then it could wait until the next day. 
But Jesus sees this person in pain, right? He sees this person in need of, of, a, of healing. And so he doesn't wait till the next day. He, he touches the man, right? And he heals him right there. So he was actually at a banquet for a Pharisee one time in, in Luke 14. And there's a man with dropsy who's, who's at this banquet. And, and one of the problems with the religious rulers was they had all these rules for themselves, right? And so they have the exceptions to the rule, right? Like we're this way. Remember, remember the day when we had blue laws, right? And the laws you don't go, you didn't. Nothing was open on Sunday. Remember that and the restaurants were open, and so we were like, "Yeah, that's right. It's great. We're keeping the Sabbath, right?" So now we don't have those rules anymore, right? And places are open, and we're like, "Well, I really don't want my wife to have to cook. I want her to keep from the Sabbath, so we'll go there." <clears throat> but we have all these rules, you know, things we can do, we can't do. And you might say, well, we, you know, we went and we ate and, and we kept the Sabbath here. But yet, sometimes in the restaurant, we're more concerned that the mashed potatoes are cold than we are for the waitress and the need that she has in her life. You know, that maybe she has a child that's sick. Maybe she lost a parent within the last month. And we're more concerned about our needs than we are the needs of this person who's waiting on us. And that, that kind of gives you a picture of, of what the Pharisees had done. They had made all of these laws. And so Jesus comes along and he's healing people on the Sabbath. And they are so upset at him. They are so furious with him that they now are plotting to kill him. And to take his life because he was breaking these laws. And what's fascinating is Matthew, in the midst of this discussion of the Sabbath and this controversy of the Sabbath, inserts this passage that all of this was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 42. And the fulfillment of this prophecy that, that the Messiah would come, that he would be one who would be a servant, because it's in the context of the servant of Isaiah in Isaiah 42, and that in the fulfillment of him being the servant, in the midst of that would be the result of his actions and the result of his ministry that would bring about salvation and the proclamation to the nations. So I want you to see this passage. So look in verse 15. It says, Jesus, being aware of this, says he withdrew. Now that's fascinating. Jesus isn't being combative with them, right? He's not there saying to them, hey, you know, I'll take you on. No, he withdraws, right? Because there was this idea that Jesus is not drawing attention to himself. In fact, if you notice the next verse, it says that large crowds were following him and he healed them. But then notice verse 16, he warned them, shh. Hey, hey, let's, let's keep this here. Let's not tell anybody about this. Now that's fascinating to us because we're like, Jesus has come, right? He's here. The Messiah is here. And we would think that we would want, he would want everyone to know. But yet he's not drawing attention to his power, right? He's not drawing attention. He's not using that power somehow to draw attention to himself, because he wants people to see the power of God. Mark 
uh, in his gospel, it's called the Mark and Secret, where a time and time again, Jesus heals somebody and he says, don't tell anybody. He heals somebody, don't tell anybody. He heals somebody, and Mark repeats this multiple times about how Jesus was telling them not to tell because of what he had just done. Now, what happened though? Right? People were telling, right? They're like, I mean, their lives are changed, right? They're not going to keep that to themselves. They're like, hey, you're never going to believe this. And so this, it begins this idea of could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one? Could he be the one? But what begins to happen is exactly what Jesus feared. Because people begin to follow him, right? The crowds are coming out and they're saying, do a sign, right? Go ahead. We'll follow you. Do a miracle. We're ready. Do it. Go ahead, do it. And Jesus would say, no. What do you mean? Because he wasn't going to do the signs just to be doing the signs. He would do it because it was a moment to glorify God. It was a moment in time where God had appointed for that moment at that time for him to heal somebody. And Jesus was not about to use the power that was his to draw attention to himself because he was a servant, right? He's the fulfillment of Isaiah's servant, the servant of Isaiah. And so he's not drawing attention to himself. So notice, and that's why he quotes this passage because he says, and by the way, this was prophesied. And notice there in verse 18, here is my servant, right? You see that term, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight and I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And it was a reminder that the Messiah that was coming, the promised one that was coming, Emmanuel, would first of all be a servant. Because he came not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to the glory of God and to God's plan for the nations. Because God's ultimate plan was that justice and the proclamation of the one true and living God would go to the nations. And so Christ was the fulfillment of that. He was the fulfillment of that servant. But he's not doing anything that's drawing attention to himself. But he's drawing attention to the plan. Right? He's drawing attention to God's plan of redemption. Go to the next slide. Notice where it says here, this is a quote from John MacArthur. He says, Matthew assures his readers that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, just as foretold by Isaiah the prophet, that Jesus did not come to fulfill the confused and the unscriptural expectations of the people, right? Those that wanted a sign, but to fulfill his divine mission to proclaim truth to the nations. One of the reminders is for us was that when Jesus came, that there was an ultimate plan of redemption. There was an ultimate plan of salvation. And the religious leaders were placing so much emphasis on all of the externals that they were forgetting that unless there was a change of the heart, unless there was a change on the inside, but what did it matter about all the externals? You know, in, in the passage where he heals 
uh, I mean, where he's talking to the Pharisees about the, the disciples and how they're eating grain, he says, he reminds them of this, of this quote from Hosea that I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. And it was this idea that God didn't need all of these externals, all of these different things that they were, that they were doing. God wanted their hearts to change. And so the things that we do in our lives of obedience ought to be the outflow of the inward transformation of God in our lives. And God wants to change us from the inside out, we would say, in our culture. We want, he wants to transform us on the inside. And remember, John the Baptist came, and, and you know, John the Baptist started preaching this baptism of repentance, right? Because they're emphasizing all of these other things on the outside. And John says, you know what the problem is? It's your heart. You've not repented of your sin. You have no understanding of what sin is. And so what we need is a rediscovery of sin and repentance. And there ought to be a ceremonial cleaning that's more about the condition of your heart than just the condition of your outwardness before you go in to worship. You know, that's a good word to us. Because we can fall into the same trap right? We're going through life. We kind of have our, our life during the week. We have our life, you know, at church. And so oftentimes we're running, we're doing, we're doing all of these things. We're so busy that we're not really allowing God to transform our hearts through the week with his word and in prayer. And so, but we show up at church, right? Got the bow tie on, got the thing on, you know, looking good. How you doing, brother? Doing good. Doing good. You had a good week? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Great. Great. Marvelous. You know, and we sit in the pew and we leave. And sometimes we don't really consider the issues of the heart. And we think, hey, I did God a service, man. I showed up at church. God's like, I, I don't really need your attendance. I need your heart, right? I don't need your <laughs> placement in the seat, let's put it that way, anymore. I want your heart, right? I want to see you transformed. I want to see you living a life that reflects Jesus and becoming more and more like him. And this reminder in this passage is that Jesus came with that kind of attitude. And obviously the application is we need to come with that kind of attitude to ourselves. You know, it's hard in, in ministry oftentimes when we do things and we want to draw attention to certain things. And somebody tells us a story. And before too long, we start telling a story about, oh, yeah, I had something similar happening. And we think we're encouraging. But somehow we can turn that story and make it all about us rather than trying to minister to the person that's right in front of us. And so, you know, we're more concerned with telling our story than we really are with the compassion of, of sharing with that person. And so there's just a lot of areas where we can improve in this area as well. Now, notice the next thing. Go to the next slide. You see that this plan of redemption is kind of reflected in verse 19. I want to show you that. He will not argue or shout. He will hear his voice in the streets. So it has this idea that although the Son of God, the divine Messiah, the rightful King of kings, Jesus never tried to secure a hearing, much less a following by political power or physical force. Because first and foremost, he was a servant. And that's one of the reasons why the Pharisees are upset at him because they want him on their team, right? 
Why don't you do it our way? Why don't you listen to us? Why don't you uh, come to Jerusalem? And boy, we can take that power and we could really work that power to our advantage. And Jesus says, that's not what that looks like. Because his priority was not the fulfillment of the wishes of the Pharisees. His priority was the fulfillment of the will of the Father. Now look at 20 and 21. It says, he will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. And the nations will put their hope in his name. You see, Christ is our hope. He is the hope to the nations. And his plan was to give his life as a payment for sin, to bring salvation to the nations, and then he would send his servants to take his message to the nations. This passage of, this, of the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, it had the idea of oftentimes they would take these reeds and they would use them for different things. Sometimes they would make flutes, they would make other kind of things out of them. But over time, the humidity and moisture would break those reeds down and they would become useless, right? It's the same way where there's a wick, you know, that's smoldering away. And so that, smick, that wick needs to be changed and there needs to be a new one that needs put in there so it would be brighter again. But he uses this, this idiom, these two idioms from this Hebrew passage in Isaiah and brings them over into this application to say that Jesus will not make all things new, right? He'll not make all these things in the way that needs to be done. He's not going to change all of that until, and notice what it says here, until he has led justice to victory. Until the nations will put, then the nations will put their hope in his name. So it has an idea that there was a greater purpose that the justice of God would be realized in the lives of people and then Christ would, would, would then take that message and take that message of hope to the nations and then it says the nations will put their hope in his name. Whose name? The name of the servant. In the name of God. And Jesus did that. Right, Because the issue of sin had to be dealt with. The issue of sin had to, to be dealt with. Because what did it do to, to, to make all these nations conform if you didn't deal with the issue of sin? What, what if you don't deal with the, 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 the issue of evil, right? The issue of the broken heart. The, the issue of sin in our lives that separates us from God. And God has every right to bring judgment on our lives because of his holiness and because of our rebellion against him, because of our brokenness. And so the hope of Christ is that he would come and he would pay that penalty for that sin and he would open up that understanding that, that there has been justice, right? That the just one has come. And he would be, as, as Paul will say in Romans 3, he would be both the just and the justifier. And God's divine justice would come. That God had brought justice on sin, but at the same time, he had brought 
freedom and redemption and that anyone who put their faith and their hope in the trust of the servant and the work that he did on the cross would find hope, would find joy, and then they would take that proclamation and that proclamation would go to the nations and the servant would have fulfilled exactly what he came to do. Amen. And so, you know, as I've been thinking this week about what does that look like, right? What does that look like for the church? What does that look like even for a nation? You know, what does that look like for us as individuals? What are the implications of that? This is 4th of July weekend, right? And government has a role in justice. Government has a role that is necessary and needed. And so when we come to this weekend, you know, I always reflect back about how, you know, there was a group of individuals and, and these persons within these colonies that said, we want a, a different way. We want a way that we can, that we can come together and government will fulfill its God-ordained role. And within that, there will be a process through which justice can come and in which those who are there can fulfill the lives that God has called them to, and they can do that in a way, and they can live out their lives as God intended. Because one of the issues in the early America was this idea that voices were not welcome, right? That's what the Stamp Act was really about. It was about papers who were publishing things against the government and against the king and so we're going to put a stamp on anything you publish that you have to pay. So we'll get a tax, but we'll also control what it is that you say. And if you don't say what we want you to say, then, well, we'll just withdraw the stamp and you can't publish that. And so it was a way of controlling people. And in Virginia, there was a major issue in Virginia that, that, um, that Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, others were very alarmed at, and that was that the state church, the Anglican church of the Church of England in America, in Virginia, had this set of rules. If you wanted to preach, you had to have a license to preach. If you wanted to have an assembly of people, you had to have a license for that. If you were going to do a wedding, you had to have a license for that. If you were going to bury someone, you had to have a license for that. And if you didn't show up at church, then you were going to be fined for that. And because you were a person that lived in the colony, a certain amount of your income would automatically go to the Church of, of England as your mandatory giving, your mandatory tithe. What do you all think about that system, right? That's one way to practice stewardship, right? But the problem with it was that only certain people, right, got the license. And so, you know, well, we don't feel you're called because you don't believe the same way we believe. So the Baptists in early America were like, well, you know where my calling comes from? It comes from right here, right? My call to preach and to proclaim the word of God doesn't come from the government, it comes from God himself. And so if I have to go out in the woods and, have, and we have to have church out there, that's what we're gonna do. And people would go to those meetings and man, it was alive and people were excited and they were baptizing them in the rivers. And then they would go to the state church and it was dry 
and it was a ritual, and they would be like, you know what I want? I want to be a Baptist, right? I want, oh, that's what I want. I want to go. And, let's, and man, they're, they're teaching stuff out of the Bible that's amazing. And I have a Bible for myself, and I'm reading it, and I'm understanding it. And I need to, I need to be a follower of Jesus. And this excitement began to happen in the, what was called the Great Awakening, Right in America, where all of a sudden the revival began to sweep as as preachers were preaching, and revival began to sweep America, and people began to see, hey, we have a faith, and we want to exercise that faith. But there were Baptist ministers in Virginia that did that, and you know where they ended up? In jail. Um, Jack Waller, name is his. His nickname before Christ was Cussin' Jack. Got saved and man, the Lord completely changed his life. And he started proclaiming the gospel just as hard as he had done in his life before he started preaching the gospel. But one day in, a, in the area of Urbana, he was preaching the gospel and the local, uh, they showed up at the meeting house, right? The local parish priest was there along with the sheriff who was a member of the Anglican church and said this guy's got to go so they put him in jail and so not to be deterred he started preaching out the window of the jail right and the crowd assembled so they ran horses through the crowd trying to disperse the crowd but the crowd would not disperse so they opened up the oven inside the jail to fill it with smoke so he would stop preaching and he was preaching through this little crack right in the thing still so he could breathe and so he could preach and these guys would not be deterred. And so it was men like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and others said, you know what the government shouldn't be in control of? Somebody's beliefs, right? Your conscience. The government shouldn't tell you what to believe or what not to believe. You ought to be able to believe that for yourself. And the government should not limit who can preach with well, a truth that can be shared. Let everyone preach. And if something is true, then that truth will rise to the top. And then that will be known to be truth. And then that can be proclaimed. And then people will decide for themselves what they want to believe. And if something is true, then enough people comes together. It ought to be allowed to be able to do that. And that was the role of government, right? That's why you have a, uh, a bill of rights that says that you have the right to assemble without the government interfering with your right to assemble, right? You have the, uh, the ability to freely exercise your faith without the government interfering within that. And so their idea was the government should be limited and government should allow freedom of religion, freedom of expression of faith. And when, when, when government begins to say, this is not welcome, this is not welcome, your input is not welcome here, your input is not welcome here, then that is a dangerous thing. Be, the, Oz Guinness in his uh, book when he wrote about this called The Naked, he wrote a book called The Naked Public Square that basically said anytime government begins to limit, right, the voices in the marketplace that you're headed toward totalitarianism, that all the voices need to be welcome in the marketplace. So, government should allow us, and, and that's one of the reasons why Americans have been so, excuse me, so successful in taking missions around the world is because that exists in our country, 
right? And we've worked to make that happen in other countries where there's freedom of religion, freedom to express faith. And we, we think that is a God-given right. And, and we're going to go to any country, we're going to go to any place, and we're going to tell people about the Lord because they need to hear it. And so that has been one of the great outgrowths of independence in America. Now, the role of the church, though, has to be that we have to be the catalyst to that, right? We have to be a body of believers together where we're working and moving and going places. And we are saying, hey, there are places that the gospel needs to go, that the name of Jesus needs to be known to all the nations. And if Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, and gave his life to proclaim to the nations, then we as a church need to be a servant's and we need to humble ourselves and we need to go to those nations and we need to proclaim Jesus. See, the church has a role. But guess what? You have a role as well. Because the strength of the church is made up what? In the strength of the individuals and the families within that church. And for the church to fulfill its role, then I have to fulfill my role that I have to be willing to go. I have to be willing to humble myself. I have to be willing to put myself in a situation where maybe I'm not as comfortable and go to that place and say, do you know about the name of Jesus? Could it be that God brought me all the way across an ocean, on an airplane, on a train, to your city to look you in the eye and tell you Jesus loves you and he died for your sins and he wants you to know his name and the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So that comes to us as well. Now at the end of this, what I want to do today is we're, I'm going to ask, we're going to do kind of our Uganda report. So just...
I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.